Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mic check, mic check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm that biblical, biblical theology, theology, study the person of God attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone that gives some people allergy. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical Nobody wants to be all cold and theological But being a theologian is not optional Cause when you talk about Christ you're saying something doctrinal Either it accurately portrays his majesty Or it's a travesty Or worse, blasphemy You can do a global search This mark is crucial to the health of a local church The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we gotta see The importance of biblical theology What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key Is following the Bible storyline all right, welcome to another episode of Theology Matters. I am your host, Devin Palou, and have a great show scheduled for you today. We have been uh, following our philosopher series, our, our great uh, thinkers in the past, and we have covered so far uh, St. Anselm and St. Thomas Aquinas, as well as uh, Tonight we are going to look at St. Augustine and uh, his views on truth and got a, got a really good show in, in store. And uh, with us will be Dr. Sadler, uh, of course, <clears throat> she's kind of helped walk us uh, through some of these great thinkers of the past. And uh, Dr. Sadler is, is one of the most popular guests we've uh, ever had on the show for sure. Uh, he's just uh, he's a wealth of knowledge. and. If you're anything like me, you know, I, I love philosophy, but sometimes it can be hard. It can be hard to understand some of these uh, concepts, and Dr. Sadler just does an incredible job uh, breaking down some of these uh, more difficult things, uh, kind of puts it on the lower shelf, uh, makes it easier to grasp and, and understand, so really have enjoyed uh, partnering with him. Uh, more about that uh, in a few minutes. Uh, last week we did our uh, had a big debate on the show. We had Matt Dillahoney from the Atheist Experience um, and Clinton Wilcox from Life Training Institute, and we had a two-hour crossfire uh, debate on the topic of abortion. And uh, that has been probably the most downloaded show uh, that we have uh, probably ever done. Within a week, it had over 25, right around 2,500 downloads, and uh, definitely been all over the internet. And um, it's been been interesting to see how that has played out. So, uh, if you go to our Facebook page, that's uh, Theology Matters with the Palous, uh at on Facebook, you can you can find our podcast. You can find uh, all of our shows that that we've done. Uh, we've hosted several debates. We've done 
debates with Protestants and Catholics on Sola Scriptura, on Mormonism uh, versus the Christian concept of God, atheism versus theism, a couple debates on that. Uh, even did a debate on whether or not hell uh, is eternal or uh, whether the Bible teaches annihilationism. So it's been been a been some several several good discussions and debates as well as several shows uh, that we've done. We try to bring in good scholars like Dr. Sadler and tackle some of these uh, tougher issues, as I said. So uh, that, I think that's about all I had to say. Let me go ahead and and uh, introduce Dr. Sadler because I know there's a, there's a lot we have to cover tonight. So let's, let's uh, go ahead and bring on Dr. Sadler. Uh, he is the author and instructor at uh, Marist College received both his master's and PhD in philosophy from Southern Illinois University Carbondale. He is also the founder of Reason yes, IO and an organization that brings philosophy into practice, making complex classic uh, philosophical ideas accessible for a wide audience of professionals, students, and lifelong learners. And tonight we're going to focus on Augustine's view of truth and lying and the influence that he has had on uh, modern philosophy and Christian thought. That promises to be a, a very good show. Dr. Sadler, are you there? I am. Thank you for that, uh, that very nice introduction. Oh, hey, I really appreciate you, you coming back. You know, uh, how I found Dr. Sadler was uh, searching through some YouTube videos and trying to watch some lectures on philosophy, and I came across his channel and uh, have been really hooked ever since. And I've told all my uh, friends at uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary, where I go, who uh, love philosophy. They offer degrees of philosophy there as well, and uh, they've just been eating your videos up too. So we really are thankful for, for you because you've helped us out all <laughs> a lot, I think. Well, that's great because that that is really the the goal for me is uh, you know these texts I think and these thinkers kind of sell themselves when they're when they're explained well. There's so much richness and resources there that um, it's it's usually just a matter of, of of putting things into context and and uh, lining things up so you can see what somebody's actually doing. And with Augustine, we got somebody who's a big heavy hitter in Christian philosophy. Right. Right. Absolutely is. Um, let me ask you, I was going to ask you a question. I, I just thought about this maybe before we jump into the topic, start with something a little lighter. Uh, have you seen uh, kind of the new barrage of Christian movies, I guess, that are coming out? I know they have The Son of God just came out. I know Noah has come out. And then God's Not Dead uh, is, another, is another big one. Have you had a chance to see any of those, or? I haven't had a chance to see any of them, so I've just been going by uh, reviews and little clips that I see here and there. Um, so I can't really say anything uh, particularly well-informed about them. Not right. at this point. You know, it would be interesting to do a show sometime down the line uh, specifically about, um, you know, religion as it's portrayed in movies. That could be a, a very interesting topic. That would be that would be a that would be a good show. It's it's funny, you know, because it's like 
from some Christians, I see, uh, well, particularly, I guess, with the Noah thing, because that's the latest. Uh, you have some Christians that are, you know, don't support it, don't, don't see it, have nothing to do with it, and then other Christians will, they went and saw it, and they kind of pull some different meanings out of it, and they say, you know, it's not necessarily biblical, but, you know, it, it has some good talking points. And so, I think with some of these movies, you know, may, maybe they're not um, faithful to the text, unfortunately, but they're still, I think, give us some good opportunity to be able to, to talk about, you know, some of these issues. I know the, the God's Not Dead uh, movie that came out with the, the professor who's the atheist and kind of puts forth a challenge to the student to uh, demonstrate the existence of God. I think you'd like, I think you'd probably like that, being a philosophy professor. Um, yeah, it, it gave some of those good talking points, I guess, that has kind of introduced apologetics uh, to the church. It, came, it was like number one in the box office, and it was just a, a real low-budget film. Yeah, have you gotten a chance to see it? I, I have, yeah. Yeah, it, it's kind so of, what? you know, it's... Yeah, there's some spots that are, you know, a little unrealistic, you know, but I thought for, for overall that the, the plot was pretty good. You have a atheist professor that's kind of antagonistic, and uh, he wants the students, and this is in their philosophy class, and so he's wanting the students to um, write down that God is dead. And uh, if they do that, then they won't have any problem with the class, and if they don't do that, then they're going to have to defend the existence uh, that God exists. And so, you know, it's a, it's a pretty interesting plot. And I, I think uh, what it does more of anything is it shows that Christians really should stand up um, for their faith. I think that was kind of the thing that came across to me. And the apologetics uh, that was in it was, was decent. Yeah, you know, it's that's kind of a good point. Is um, it, We're not just called to stand up for our faith in the sense of getting out there and saying, here's what I believe, here's what I believe. We're called upon to give reasons for what, what it is that we believe. Um, and, and I don't know, you know, we've talked about this before in the past. For me, part of what uh, drew me back into Christianity, because I, I left the church for quite a while in, in my youth, was uh, finding people who actually could give me, you know, well-reasoned, coherent, cogent, uh, explanations and discussions of, of these things. In a, in a way, it's sort of like, um, well, you know, I, I'm going to tell a story about Augustine before we actually launch into it. There was a guy, okay, great. and I'm not, I'm not sure if I brought this up in, in any of the previous shows, but there was a guy when I was in high school, and I, I went to a Catholic high school, and I was, you know, kind of a disaffected uh, leather jacket, uh, tough guy, you know, uh, sort of type, and you know, we had to take these religion classes, and they were mostly dry stuff. You know, I, I didn't get a lot out of them, admittedly. And this particular one was, was on sacraments, and unfortunately the nun who was supposed to teach the class actually got sick and died. So they brought in this guy, um, Mr. Lorenzo, and he was this tiny little monkish fellow uh, with a shaved head, who, who came in from Seattle, and he was, you know, completely last minute. And now that I think about it, that was second semester, so they, they got this guy out of, you know, who knows where. Um, 
And I'd actually had a philosophy class before that and just hated it because it was it was very doctrinaire and I, I didn't get anything out of it. As a matter of fact, I think I got a C or a D in the class. And this guy came in and he had himself had a sort of Augustinian conversion. So that what he meant by that was he was living a kind of lifestyle in Seattle that that was similar to what Augustine himself had lived in Carthage and in in Rome, you know, this this fairly hedonistic lifestyle, um, you know, but at the same time seeking something, seeking some greater meaning, seeking something that had some depth, and not finding it in in the uh, the lifestyle that he was in, and finding it finding something, some clues to it, you know, in friendships and. Uh, things like that, but finding himself still unable to pull himself out of the muck. And then he had this this conversion, and, and so he took Augustine as kind of his patron. So he comes in, and he tells us, well, if I'm going to teach you about the sacraments, then I suppose I should teach you about Augustine, because he's really important to me. And Augustine had a lot to say about sacraments as well, so it, it would be good for you. If we're only going to concentrate on one guy, that'll work. But if I'm going to teach you Augustine, then I have to teach you some stuff about Plato, because Augustine was a Neoplatonist. And so let's start out with Plato. So he, he did that, and then he taught us some Aristotle, and then he taught us about uh, Gnosticism and Manichaeism, which Augustine was in for quite a while, and um, then he started teaching us about Augustine himself and about his, 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 uh, his thoughts, his, his books, his, his doctrines, his life that he lived. And then we had a little bit of extra time, Leslie said, well, you know, Augustine was kind of the first psychologist, so I'm going to teach you about Freud and Jung and, and Adler too. And I'd never had a teacher like this before. You know, somebody who, first off, didn't have a textbook. He would just get up and say, well, here's what this guy said. Here's some of the statements. Now, what do you guys think about it? And, and most of the students hated it because, you know, they wanted to know what was on the test and just get through the class and um, proceed on. But, but for me, uh, I didn't realize that what we were doing was philosophy at the time. I loved it, you know. And, and this guy, he was one of the sort of lighthouses for me. So later on, I could, you know, find my way back home. And I, I don't know you what happened to him after that because, you know, I didn't stay in touch. Uh, but um, he was affected by Augustine, and, and then he, he ended up uh, being the right person at the right time in my life. And so, you know, you see a lot of this, this sort of stuff with these great thinkers. Um, right. So let's let's actually talk about Augustine yeah. then. Let's do that. Let's walk us walk us through Augustine here. Or is it Augustine or Augustine? That's the big debate, right? <laughs> well, e- either one is okay because it's sort of like um you know uh any other any other figure in in a foreign language, um, mm-hmm. it would be Augustinus, right? So it's, I don't think it makes much difference so long as we're we're still talking about the same guy, um, right? Right. So what's what's really interesting at the start about Augustine is he's a transitional figure. He is um, one of the first Western church fathers and doctors 
and probably the most important one in the Western Church. Um, you know, it's hard to it's hard to put anyone else up against him as far as the Church Fathers go for the West for the influence that he had. And mm-hmm. he was at the very end of antiquity, so he's seeing. You know, he actually sees Rome fall um, to the barbarians towards the very end of his life. And so he's inhabiting this time when um, Christianity has become not the religion, but, but a, a religion within the Roman Empire. As a matter of fact, he writes the City of God to try to defend Christianity for, against the charge that was made by pagans, because there were still a lot of pagans at the time, saying that Christianity was weakening the empire and making it, uh, uh, you know, not quite the the glorious Rome that it used to be. And, um, you know, he's going to be this person who bequeaths all these important ideas and interpretations to medieval thinkers and and later on to the Reformation thinkers. I mean, you know, Calvin, there's probably nobody uh, other than, you know, Paul, of course. (laughs) But, you know, it's hard to compete with him. Um, But, you know, Augustine is really, really central for, for Calvin. Uh, Luther was an Augustinian monk. So so people go back to him over and over and over again. As, as a matter of fact, the guy who wrote something, that, yeah. What's that? Yeah, I was just going to say, that's something, because you see, you know, it's rare you see Roman Roman Catholics and Protestants, you know, really agreeing, uh, you know, so so much, but, it's, you know, both both both, uh, both groups claim them. Yeah, um, and it's it's partly because his, his works are so uh, fertile. There's so much there. Um, so, like I said, he's this transitional figure. He's kind of you know combining the the best of both worlds because he you know he he, he gets into contact with some really high powered Christian thinkers. Uh, all over the place. Ambrose, who turns out to be another church father uh, and doctor, um, he corresponds with Jerome for a while, who's often in in, in uh, the East. Um, and at the same time, you know, he's received a really good uh, classical education. He teaches rhetoric for a while. You know, in, in some respects, he's sort of like Paul in that way too. I mean, Paul had a really good education uh, himself and then turns it to use, you know. He doesn't doesn't throw any of it away. Um, Paul was a great writer as well. So Augustine was, one of the reasons I think why a lot of people like him as a a figure is because he really understood um, the psychology of sin, in part by being a sinner. He, you know, he writes about this in the Confessions. He he asks himself at certain points, boy, what what the hell's wrong with me? Why am I so screwed up? Um, you know, like when he's discussing the uh, the reason, you know, when they stole the uh, the pears and what was going on with that. And, and he comes to the conclusion. We'll talk more about this, you know, in in a later thing. Um, right. You really can't you can't explain evil completely uh, because it, it ends up being this this polymorphous and yet privative sort of sort of non-entity um, but you know he, he, he goes through his life and he, he has a lot of falls and he he's striving you know he, he wants God and, and he writes about this again and again in the confessions he says I was I was desiring God 
and desiring God under this idea that I had, and it turned out to be the wrong idea. And so the desire wasn't off, but my idea was off. So I needed to revise my my ideas. Uh, and he's troubled by all of the great philosophical problems in, uh, in in apologetics and philosophical theology. You know, how what is what is the nature of evil? Why is there evil if God is good? Um, how does this incarnation stuff make any sense? You know, what are you guys talking about with this Trinity stuff? You know? <laughs> All these sorts of things. What's you know? How can God know what's what's going to happen without um, making us lose free will? He he tackles all these things in part because he you know he lived these out as real problems. He he wasn't just an abstract uh, professor off in an you know the proverbial ivory tower. He felt these were real right. issues and they had to be explored. And so you know he writes about them. Thank you know, thank God for that because he left all these great uh, explanations behind. Um, so the works that I'm actually going to focus on today, after giving that big build up and mentioning you know the city of God and the confessions, I'm not going to talk about those at all. <laughs> I'm just going to talk about two uh, minor works by him where he he considers lying. Uh, truth is very important, of course, for Augustine, but, but his discussions of lying are particularly interesting. Um, and so he wrote two treatises about this. One was called just On Lying, and he wrote that earlier, and then he wrote another one. A lot of times Augustine would write uh, books because they were needed at the time. And the context for the second book, which is called Against Lying, and he, he wrote this to a friend of his called uh, Consentius. There were heretics who, it, it's almost, you know, if you think about this, it's almost like the, the ethics of undercover police operations. Um, there were heretics called um, Priscillianists, and they, um, you know, they were a problem. There were a lot of different heresies that were, were um running around at the time. And the question was, can you pretend to be a heretic? Can you, can you essentially blaspheme by saying um, the wrong things about God, knowing that they're the wrong things, in order to get in good with them so that you can you know, get at these guys? And Augustine says, no way. <laughs> you can't do that. And and here here's a book why, and there was um, there was another book circulating at the time called the Pound, that uh, I forget the name of the guy who'd written it, but he was saying, well you know you could lie about this sort of thing. That's lying for a really good reason. I mean, there's plenty of cases where where a lie could you know turn to somebody's good where it's not actually going to be harmful, and in that case, lying is not a a bad thing. And, you know, if you look at, at the Bible, there's, there's people who lie in the Bible and, and, you know, sometimes not only are they not criticized or punished, they're actually rewarded for it. Like uh, uh, Rahab, you know, uh, lying about the, the, the spies that are coming in, the Israelite spies. Um, so, you know, if it's okay for them, then it should be okay for us. And so what he's, what he's getting at there is this... Um, this perennial problem, is it okay to lie in the cause of some sort of good? Uh, 
or is lying still wrong? And so that's what he's going to consider in these these works. Um, there, I mean, there's some other issues, some other preoccupations at the time that are coming up in terms of lying because, you know, you could get yourself persecuted for being a Christian. They were, you know, just a couple centuries before, if you were a Christian, uh, you were basically giving yourself a death sentence. So there was a question, you know, um, is it okay to lie so as not to get killed? Or um, what if you know that somebody else is a Christian and somebody comes to you and says, um, you know, we think that this person's a Christian and we're going to kill him if, if, you know, we find out that he is. Um, And they put you on the spot and they say, is he a Christian or isn't he? Is, Is it okay to lie to save that person's life? That's, you know, that's a real live issue at that, that right. time and before that. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's other issues that come up as well, like, uh, well, what about all these metaphorical passages? Aren't they kind of lying? You know, if they talk about God getting angry when God is really impassable, uh, doesn't that make right. the, the Bible itself, you know, a whole bunch of lies? And so wow. Augustine is, is, is considering all of these issues. Uh, and, and, you know, in typical August, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, so I mean, they're thinking through these issues, yeah, they're, 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 they're seeing these issues and he's really thinking through a lot of these, I don't, I don't think most people have even thought about stuff like that, you know, that is, that is really something. Yeah, I, I have to say, uh, you know, as I'm, as my YouTube videos are, are getting more and more comments, I, I get a lot of people asking me questions, uh, and I have to kind of restrain myself, you know, because I, I, I have a, you know, I have a tendency to be a little bit uh, off the cuff. And I'd like to say to them, you know, they'll, they'll they'll propose and they'll say, well, you know, if God speaks in metaphorical language, isn't God lying? And I, you know, I'm tempted to say, come on, Augustine talked about that. Just just go read the text and see what he has to say. You're not coming up with with some new problem that Christians. <laughs> didn't think about because they weren't dummies back then, you know. There's there's yeah. a lot of people in the 21st century who think that they, you know, they've come up yeah. with the, the new refutation, you know. Yeah, Richard Dawkins is the, is the king of the hill, and it's like, man, these guys have answered those guys hundreds of years ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, let's let's move on to okay. looking at some of the biblical examples. Um, and, and there's a lot more that Augustine doesn't consider, and he notes that too. But some of the key ones are um, Abraham tells Pharaoh that Sarah is his sister. So that seems to be like a red flag right there. Jacob, you know, seems to be lying to his father and telling him that he's Esau so he can so you can get his uh, blessing. Um, Joseph conceals his identity from his brothers, and then the Egyptian midwives, um, they tell Pharaoh, after Pharaoh tells them, you've got to kill all, the, all the, the boys, they say, well, you know, by the time that we show up, the children are already born, and, you know, it would, really wouldn't work that way, so um, <laughs> uh, they're, they're saving lives by doing that. And then Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, conceals these Hebrew spies, 
Um, and then he also talks about Peter denying Christ uh, three times. And the question is, how are we supposed to understand all these cases? Are they, are they teaching us the lesson that it's okay to lie in certain circumstances? Uh, it's not okay to lie in general, but is it okay to lie if, you know, you're on God's side or if you're saving lives by, by doing so? And Augustine's, um, Augustine's basic views on all of this can be summarized in, in four main, main points. So he thinks that it's never right or good for a person to tell a lie. It's always sinful and it's always unjust. It's always wrong in some sense to tell a lie. So he's, he's very absolute on that. Um, right. But he also says, don't think for a second that all lies are equal, you know, that they're equally bad. As a matter of fact, some lies are, are pretty innocuous. They're still bad, but they're, they're pretty minor right. stuff. Some lies are just, you know, horrific. Um, so that's the second point. And then the third thing, which is really important, he points out, well, not everything that we'd be tempted to call a lie is actually a lie. We have to be kind of careful about saying that, that a lie oh. is being told because you have to have an intent right. to deceive. It's not just enough to say something false. You have to have right. an intent to deceive. Um, and then he, he actually says... Um, these are complicated and, and murky matters for us, um, not just because they're complicated and murky in themselves, but also because we're damaged goods. You know, even, even though we are, uh, you know, new creatures in Christ, we're still stained by original sin, and that messed us up quite a bit. And you know, unless we actually make progress towards the truth, um, we're going to have a hard time figuring out some of these these issues, and that's actually how he's going to to excuse, um, or at least you know, it looks like he's excusing some of the lies, like the Egyptian midwives um, or, or Rahab. So let's look at the question: Why is it always bad or wrong to lie? Because that's going to be a sticking point, I think, for a lot of people. You know. Right. It's going to be tempting to say, look, in some circumstances, you know, it, it could be okay. So a simple answer to this is, well, we know from scriptures that lies are wrong, that we're not supposed to lie. So, you know, what, what scriptures? Well, there's a bunch of them. You know, the, Augustine writes about this in his commentary on the Gospel of John because, um, John uses the, you know, the language of truth and lies in there and also the first letter of John. He brings up a couple psalms, you know, where, where uh, it says pretty clearly that, that God, you know, is going to punish those who lie. Um, and so, you know, he's inquiring about that. And then, you know, there's the question of bare false witness. And, and some people want to say, well, you know, that's really only about law courts, um, you're only bearing false witness. <laughs> you know, you're actually under oath. Um, and Augustine says, yeah, that's not really how it's supposed to be understood. It, it's supposed to be understood that you're not supposed to lie. Um, you know, because you are really bearing witness every time that you're, you're saying something is the case. So, there, you know, there's scriptural injunctions 
that we're supposed to to uh, tell the truth. And you know, there's a lot of examples of people who are put forward as good people because they are. And not only do they tell the truth, they love the truth. And ultimately, right. within a Christian perspective, truth is God. So truth is not just a proposition. Truth is a person and a whole relation of persons. Um, so, you know, that's all good. But then somebody might come back and say, well, what about a situation like, like this one? You know, and they'll, they'll give situations like... Uh, you know, do you lie to the to the serial killer who you know has got a gun and is you know hunting down a victim? Couldn't lying be the right thing to do? Couldn't it be merciful? Couldn't it actually be the right thing or the good thing? And so Augustine realizes that just throwing scriptures out there is not going to solve the issue. So how do you deal with this? Well, he looks at it in terms of balancing goods. So because every time, every time you have a dilemma like this, you're really saying, well, lying itself is not a good thing, but it's not as bad as allowing this to happen. Or lying isn't good, but this good thing would be served by it. So you have to balance these goods against each other. You have to have some sort of scale. So, you know, the idea would be that some goods would be so good that they'd make up for lying, or some things would be so bad that they would outweigh lying. And Augustine, um, he says, you've got to put this in the right perspective. And here's where I think a lot of people probably won't go along with Augustine uh, today, um, including perhaps some, some, you know, some Christians. But I think Augustine is fundamentally right on this. He says, if you, if you look at it in terms of temporal versus eternal life, or the body versus the soul, if you lie, you are, you know, you're removing yourself from eternal life. You're throwing away an infinite good, and you're doing so for the sake of some, some limited good. You know, and it may be something really, really good. I mean, saving another person's right. uh, life, that's a, that's a great thing, you know. Um, right. Even, even taking care of somebody else's feelings, that's, that's a great thing. But if it's coming at the expense of throwing away one's own eternal life, he thinks that's kind of, kind of misguided. He actually says, you know, um, love thy neighbor as thyself. You actually have to love yourself in order to be able to love your neighbor, don't you? Uh, and if you love yourself, then you're not going to throw away eternal life for the sake of, of, of the body. Um, so, you know, he actually says at one point, each person departs from eternity just insofar as he departs from the truth. And I, and I think that in today's culture, it's, we're, we're probably in a situation many of us, that's more like um, the Egyptians and the, uh, the Canaanites uh, that Augustine is discussing than um, his own situation. Because it was, it was pretty you know, widely acknowledged uh, in his time that, look, lying is generally a bad thing. We, you know, we have a lot of people who make a whole living at it. And uh, we, we tend to play kind of fast and loose with, with moral absolutes in our culture. So it's difficult, I think, for many people to, to 
to see that no, this 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 one actually is an absolute. Um, so you know, the big problem with putting things in terms of these different goods, Augustine mm-hmm. sees, is that we have a tendency to um, evaluate goods not based on how good they actually are, but based on our feelings about them, based on, uh, as he says, cupidity or desire and custom or, or fear, rather than the rule of truth in determining the weights of these moral matters. Um, so that, that at least gets us to the, the, the point that it's, it is wrong to lie. Then the question is, well, how wrong? How bad is it? Are they all you know, equally bad? And I'm not going to run through all of these, but, but Augustine actually differentiates a whole sort of ordering or, or ranking. Uh, and he's got eight of them in there, ranging from the worst are lying in matters of religion or, or piety. So lying about God. You know, if you were to, so if you were to infiltrate the heretics by, by pretending to be a heretic yourself, and deliberately lying to them, that's, that's pretty much as bad as it gets. Or telling another person false things about, about God, um, and knowing them to be false, and then you know, telling them that, like uh, you know, scandalizing another person deliberately um, by telling them that uh, you know, God isn't merciful, for instance. God, you know, they, they do something wrong, and, and you, you tell them, even though you know better, well, God's going to punish you. No, you're not going away from this one. Um, that would be a very, you know, deeply wrong lie, according to Augustine. Um, and then, you know, they range in severity. Um, it, you know, and, and he thinks that lying uh, because one enjoys lying, that's not as bad. Um, but it's still pretty bad. And, you know, lying because it actually helps somebody, well, that's, you know, that's a lot better. It's still not good, but it's a, it's a lot better than lying because you enjoy hurting people or, you know, because you enjoy lying. Um, and then, you know, he's at the very bottom, he has lying to save someone from being defiled in, in the body because uh, they had a lot of examples that they considered um, where, you know, they had this, this view of, of uh, um, say, if you were being forced to uh, eat you know, disgusting things, or if you, or you know, if you, somebody was threatening to rape you, um, to defile you bodily, would it be okay to lie in order to avoid that? Augustine says, well, it's still wrong to lie, but that's pretty minor stuff compared to, you know, lying about the very nature of God, um, lying because you've, you know, you're a habitual liar, all those sorts of things. And he says. Um, you know, if a person who used to tell lies for harm's sake comes to tell them for the sake of doing good, that person has made great progress. Now, it, you know, he says it's one thing that is set forth as laudable in itself, another that in comparison with a worse, that, that in comparison with a worse, it's, it's preferred. So it's, it's sort of like, you know, once you lie, you're crossing a threshold into badness. And the question isn't whether the lying is actually good or not. The question is just, well, just how bad is it? You can have a scale, you know, uh, once you actually pass that, that threshold. Um, so then, you know, if that's the case, 
what about these these people in the Bible who lied? You know, like the uh, Egyptian midwives. Um, and Augustine says these are the lies of beginners. These are the lies of people who who don't don't know any better. Who um, you know, they're actually approved on account of the progress towards improvement and hope of better things. Um, and he says, what are we supposed to see as good or right in these? The lie itself? It's not the lie that's good. It's the merciful action. And these people don't see how to do the merciful action without engaging in the lie. And, you know, if you were, you know, think about it. If you were in ancient Egypt and you were a midwife, um, you're, you're pretty busy. Uh, you've been told by the pharaoh who is, um, you know, not completely all-powerful, but pretty close. It's, it's a fairly totalitarian society. Uh, you've been told by the pharaoh that you're supposed to essentially um, collaborate in genocide and kill off all of the, you know, you, you know as you're delivering the children, you're supposed to make sure they die in, in the, the childbirth. Because otherwise the explanation that the, the, uh, the midwives give doesn't actually make any sense, that you know, they showed up too late to, to make it happen. Um, right. You know, you're, you're kind of put on the spot. So, you know, coming up with, um, well, you know, by the time we get there, they're already born, even though they're actually helping the, uh, the, the Hebrew women to, to bring their children to birth, um, that's, you know, that's a, a good thing. The lie itself is not good, but the merciful act is. And Augustine says, um, you know, look, this, this question of whether you can lie to do good, this is a tough one even for the wise and the learned, the people who actually have the leisure to think about this sort of stuff. Otherwise, I wouldn't, you know, he'd say, I wouldn't be writing a book about it, you know, <laughs> if it was so simple to figure out we wouldn't be struggling with this over and over and over again. So he says um, that, that this problem did vastly surpass the capacity of these poor women set in the midst of those nations and accustomed to their manners. So he's, he's willing to, to cut them some slack based on the fact that their culture is screwed up. You know, that they don't have, first of all, they don't have the leisure to think this stuff out uh, the way that, you know, it would be useful for them to do. And second, they're in, they're in a society where this is not going to be um, something that, that's, you know, easy for them to, to, to make sense of. And so, you know, that sounds pretty good. And then he says, now you Christians, you don't get off the hook. <laughs> Why not? He says, when we ask whether a good person ought to lie sometimes, we're not asking concerning a person from Egypt or Jericho, like, like Rahab, or Babylon, or even the earthly Jerusalem. We're asking about somebody who's, you know, a citizen of the city, which is above and free, that is the city of God, or, or the church. Um, Christians don't get, according to Augustine, they don't get to say, well, we're just like the Egyptian midwives, because they should know better, you know. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, then you can say, well, yeah, but what about this Peter guy? I mean, he lied three times, you know, put right on the spot. Do you know this guy, Jesus? No, I don't know him. Um, well, Augustine talks about the fact that, that Peter weeps afterwards. And he says, look, that's a sign. Peter knows that it's wrong. He, he was weak. He fell. 
Um, and hopefully the tears actually manage to wash away the stain of, of the sin or the, the wrongdoing, the injustice that he did. But he did something wrong, and there's no getting around that. And Peter himself knows that, and, and the gospel writer uh, knows that because he's recounting it in, in such a way. Um, so, you know, you could, you could ask about other examples as well, and there Augustine is going to steer us towards something else that's, uh, that's really interesting. I mean, not that this other stuff isn't interesting, but here there's, now we're starting to get into um, allegory and metaphor and, you know, tropological signification and the deeper meaning of, of scriptures. So um, Augustine says that, and this, I, again, this might be hard, I think, for some people to, to follow or agree with, but here's, here's what he says. When the scriptures are telling us something and they're doing so in a metaphorical way, um, they're not lying because it's what's signified by the metaphor or by the trope or the allegory that is actually being said. And so, you know, if you say that God is, is uh, angry and smites people with his arm, you're not literally saying that God has an arm that comes out of the clouds and, you know, smacks people around or, you know, wipe, you know smashes the Assyrian army or something like that. Um, and anybody who's, who's, you know, reading the scriptures and making sense of them shouldn't come to the conclusion that there's this cartoonish sort of event happening. Um, instead, they should look beyond that to the metaphorical signification of, of what's actually being being uh, said there. And so Augustine says they actually do truly signify, but they require us to do some work or some thinking to see what they actually do signify. Um, and he gives the example of Jacob and Esau. Um, Jacob tells his father that he isn't Jacob, that he is Esau, and he covers up, he, you know, he conceals his identity by covering his... Uh, his hands with and his arms with uh, with fur, and yeah, I guess Esau must have been extremely hairy, or, or else that doesn't really make yeah. any sense. Always, always um, thought that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but Augustine says <laughs> what we've got here is actually a mystery. What's being signified is the taking on of of sins. The skins represent sins. And they're being taken on by one who doesn't have them. So it's not actually a lie when you consider its deeper significance. He says, true things not false are spoken because true things not false are signified. And they're accounted lies only because people don't understand the true things that are signified are the things said, but believe that the false things are the things said. So somebody you know, reads a, a scriptural passage where it talks about God's mighty arm, and they say, aha, Christians, I've got you. You guys think that God has arms, and, you know, uh, that can't possibly be, be correct. Um, and, and they're sort of choosing not to understand what's being said. Right. Uh, that's what Augustine would say. And so it's coming out of a, a kind of perverse interpretation. Now, you know, I'm not sure how satisfying this is to to a lot of people because you might say, well, you know, 
I don't understand what half these Bible verses mean. You know, uh, are, how are they supposed to speak to me and tell me anything? And Augustine said, well, you know, they don't have to. The, the whole thing doesn't have to say everything to everybody. It just has to say what's needed to the, the particular people at the, the time. Uh, and then, you know, he talks about um, some some other examples of this. He says, look, you know, it's the same thing with secular metaphors and allegories. You know, people tell stories about about dogs and foxes, and the dogs and foxes talk to each other, and, and, and you know, you don't get all work, you know, bent out of shape over that and say, well, that's a lie. You, you know, you, you can't possibly believe that sort of thing uh, because you look beyond it. You know, if the dog and fox right. are talking to each other in Aesop's fables, it's because what's really being signified is the, uh, the, the moral. You know, all of Aesop's fables have, have a moral. Um, so he's willing to say the same thing about um, these, these biblical cases. And he actually talks as well about, um, well, let me, let me give you a few examples. And these are coming actually from online. He says, uh, when we read in the gospel, you have received a blow in the face, make ready your other cheek. Um, and he says, as an example of patience, we can't find any better one than, than Christ himself. But what happens when he gets hit on the cheek? Remember, he's the guy who said, turn the other cheek. Does he actually turn the other cheek? He actually says, you know, he says to them, if I've spoken ill, bear witness of the evil. If well, then why are you smiting me? Um, and Augustine says, does that mean that he didn't turn the other cheek? No, it means that he's actually showing that he's, he's preparing to turn the other cheek in his heart. He's actually like showing us something. And so a lot of times when people want to bring up um, contradictions in, in, in Scripture, um, including even with this, you know, this guy Jesus, right at the center of, of all the Gospels, the, the one who's supposed to be God incarnate, um, they want to say, well, look, he said to do this, and then he does a different thing over here, and you know, he says one thing over here and a different thing over here. Um, he must be he must be lying. And Augustine says, no, he's not lying. You actually have to you have to exercise your mind. God gave you a mind for a reason, not just to you know sort of stultify yourself at the literal level, but to look you know uh, at, at what's going on. Um, once we actually are able to see into people's hearts, when we have that rare opportunity to see what's going on there, you have to actually take that into account. So it's, it's you know, he's, he's not quite coming out and saying this, but he would say something like, um, you need to operate with the principle of charity before you start accusing, at least within the scriptures, people of telling all sorts of lies. And I think that in a lot of cases, people aren't... Um, you know, they're sort of on the lookout for finding whatever thing they can um, yeah. argue about and take as, you know, an irrefutable stopping point. You know, I, I actually had people um, at one time when I was using this other social media platform, you know, they brought up the fact that um, in, in the book of Job, uh, they get pie wrong. You know, they, say, they think that it's three instead of 3.14. And my response was, wow, who cares? Does anything actually turn on whether these two guys in conversation uh, who aren't God, 
you know, there's, it's, it's a, you know, it's a record of a, a dialogue between these guys talking to each other until God shows up at the end. Well, I'm God at the beginning. Right. Um, does, does it really matter if, if, you know, the, one of the interlocutors thought that pi was three? Does, does any point of doctrine turn on that? Does, you know, is that going to set up a bad example for somebody to follow? Uh, and, and, and the person just didn't get it. They thought that, well, we've got you. So Augustine, you know, when it comes to these, these scriptural um, cases, he's very concerned to, you know, keep keep us thinking about this. You know, are we dealing with something that's a mystery? Are, de- are we dealing with something that's a metaphor? Are we looking at something that has a moral significance where we have to probe a bit deeper, you know? Um, there's a certain kind of attentiveness in, in reading scripture that's required, even in reading secular literature. You know, I, I never understand yeah. people who are willing to, um, you know, read Plato and pay close attention to what he's saying there and extend some charity to Plato, but, but not do so in terms of the Gospels. Um, you know, even even watching the news, you know, you see the weatherman saying, well, today the sun will rise and the sun will set at such and such a time, you know, and you don't, uh, you know, we're not accusing him of being a liar or anything like that. Yeah. It's just phenomenological language. But you're right, they... they they tend to hold the Bible to uh, to a, a standard that they don't hold anything else to. You know, charity seems to go out the window. Yeah, now, it's interesting. Augustine would not consider that sort of uh, inconsistency to be a lie. He'd, he'd talk about it in other terms, like you're just being inconsistent. Somebody like Anselm actually has a much... Um, more robust conception, and they would say, "Yeah, you're actually lying by by doing that." You know, you're 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 put. Well, and, you know, I guess Augustine could consider it in a way to be bearing false witness, bearing false right. witness about the nature of the scriptures. It, for him, it would really depend, in large part, on whether the person actually knows, or at least you know, has some sort of inkling that they're doing the wrong thing. If they, if they truly don't know any better, you know, imagine like a, a really rage-filled, militant ideologue um, who, you know, has, has read their Thomas Paine uh, and, uh, you know, pick whoever else, and they're just like on the war path. Um, I think that Augustine would actually say that they're not, they're not telling lies. They're, they're saying things that are false, but they're not actually telling lies. Once they start to have an inkling that, well, maybe I'm going too far with this, now they're starting to stray into the territory of lies. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, what's really interesting about this um, is how uncompromising Augustine is and yet how charitable he can be at the same time. Yeah, that's a good point. You wouldn't think those things could go together. Right. Right. Let's uh, let's do this, Dr. Sadler. We're at about the top of the hour here. Let's take a break for a few minutes. And uh, what uh, what time were you wanting to, to start taking phone calls? 
Um, we could do it uh, right after the break if you want to. Okay, that'll give give people a chance to uh, to call in if they so desire. Uh, the number is seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. And uh, we're talking about Augustine. We're talking about truth, the nature of truth, whether it's wrong to lie. Uh, maybe you're a Christian, you've, you've struggled with some of these issues, maybe you're not a Christian and you have some questions kind of uh, maybe with the consistency of Christianity or some of the views uh, that are taken on this, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, we're going to go ahead and take a, a break for a few minutes, let Dr. Sadler uh, catch his breath and get something to drink, and uh, we will be back in just a moment, so feel free to go ahead and call in uh, right now. You're listening to the Ankerberg Minute with apologist and best-selling author, Dr. John Ankerberg. In today's postmodern culture, people increasingly ask, does absolute truth exist? Some claim our beliefs and values are purely subjective, based on no absolute moral authority. But is this what the Bible communicates? Certainly not. The Bible declares that God's words are absolutely true. The psalmist wrote that the laws of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The Apostle Paul noted that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. While today's skeptics may question whether truth exists, God has provided a clear response for those seeking a perfect standard on which to base their life. Allow God's perfect truth to refine your heart and life today. For additional resources on this topic, log on to johnankerberg.org. Many people are under the mistaken impression that people from different racial backgrounds have big differences in their DNA instructions. But this is not the case. The entire human race has a remarkably low level of genetic variety. Some biologists have remarked that if you sequence the DNA of two humans on opposite sides of the globe, their DNA would show less variation than that of two chimpanzees on the same mountain in Africa. These discoveries have profound implications. Since the human race has low genetic variety, this means it must have originated fairly recently. Racial groups have not, therefore, evolved independently over long periods of time. These discoveries are consistent with the Bible's version of history, whereby the human population originated from two parents only thousands of years ago, and that the people groups have originated since then. To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. Minute apologist. If you had one minute Apologia. to be able to unpack for the audience... We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. I'm here with Dr. Norman Geisler. If you've been a Christian long enough, we've all experienced the Jehovah's Witness coming to our door. My question is, are Jehovah's Witnesses a cult? Well, a cult is defined as a group that claims to be Christian, but denies one or more essential Christian doctrines. And there are about 14 essential Christian doctrines. We have a book on it called uh, Conviction uh, Without Compromise. It has a chapter in each of these fundamental doctrines, like the deity of Christ. They deny that. The doctrine of hell. They deny that. They deny... Uh, the uh, bodily resurrection. Well, there are three right off the bat that they uh, don't believe. So how can you be a Christian when you deny fundamental Christian doctrine? Psalm 11.3 says, 
If the foundation be destroyed, what shall the righteous do? So you're going to call it a, a building if it doesn't have any foundations left to it, if it's crumbling because the foundations aren't there? Jehovah's Witnesses are not a Christian group. They're a Christian cult because they claim to be Christian but deny Christian doctrines, which makes them essentially a Christian cult. I am. All right. I'll uh, 
I'll turn it back over to you. Just uh, as a reminder, we're we're taking calls again, 760-542-3907. 760-542-3907. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, I'm sure there's probably a lot of people that have watched a lot of Dr. Sadler's videos and have wanted to ask him a question and maybe have some, some stuff on this particular topic. Feel free to uh, to call in. So we've been kind of wrestling with some of these issues, uh, Dr. Sadler, of of, uh, of lying in that. Let, let me ask you this kind of a, one of the things that you, you do hear a lot um, in Christianity, and you you'd brought this up about uh, you know the view that uh, all all lies are equally bad. Uh, I know you kind of talked a little bit about with, with what Augustine said on that, but but break that down for us uh, a little bit again because it, it just seems intuitively like, man, that can't be <laughs> that that's, that that can't that can't be true. Yeah, well, Augustine doesn't think that they're all equally bad. Um, lies in in terms of um, you know things that have to do with eternal life and the nature of God are are the worst of them. And then there's sort of a descending hierarchy. Um, I'll, I'll actually I'll read you the the listing that that he has in, in both of the uh, the works on lying. So first, there's matters of lying in, in in religion or you know the nature of God. You know blaspheming would fall under there. And then um, lying that hurts some person unjustly in temporal things. You know. Um, that damages, say, their, their character or reputation or, or leads them to, um, oh, you know, telling somebody that, say, their spouse is cheating on them when, when they're not um, or um, giving somebody bad information about where to invest their money. You know, those, those he mm -hmm, considers right. to be really grievous. Um, then he says less grievous is lying that hurts one person but, but benefits another person. Because you are actually benefiting another person, so it is it is less serious. It's still bad, and there's no getting right. around the bad. So you know he likes to um, he likes to bring up the, the the scripture from Romans, where you know Paul says, "Look, you, you you can't do bad to bring about good. That doesn't that's not okay. That doesn't work." Right. Um, right. And then uh, fourth would be, now it's kind of interesting that he puts this in here. So any, any lie that actually hurts another person is, is worse than lying just because you like lying, lying for the sake of lying. Some people, you know, they like to lie. They, they, it's, it's part of their personality because they, they've done it enough, it's become a habit. Um, and then, less serious than that, is lying for the sake of being agreeable in conversation which includes for Augustine making up or embellishing stories. So, you know, like my mother, for example, could never tell the same story twice. And Augustine would say, well, that's not good because it shows being kind of fast and loose with the truth, but it's, it's, not, it's not like hurting somebody with a lying. And it's not like lying just because you have a, a, you know, a, a pathological need to lie. It's because you think it's going to, to make other people uh, happy in some way. Um, or, you know, the, the proverbial, do I look fat in this dress? You know, the, the loaded question that you can't answer possibly the right way. Um, you know, if you say something like, honey, you look good no matter what you're wearing, uh, and that's not the actual truth, um, what we often call a white lie, right? Augustine says, well, it's still a lie. 
but it's not, you know, you're not actually hurting somebody. You're trying to be agreeable with, with, with uh, somebody. And then, um, you know, there could be lies that don't hurt anybody and they do help someone. Uh, and there could be lies that actually help more than one person in, in more than one way, and those are even less serious. And then finally, there's the lying to save somebody from some sort of bodily defilement. And, and we get less and less serious with, with these different lies. So, you know, if you think about, uh, for example, we brought up the case with uh, um, the Egyptian midwives. So they, they lie to Pharaoh, and in doing so, they save the lives of who knows how many Hebrew children that were going to be unjustly um, put to death. Um, are they really, you know, are they hurting Pharaoh by lying to him? Not really, because it's not like they're, you know, taking away anything from him. And they're doing great good in the process, but it's still a lie, and it's still, still bad. And Augustine... Here's another place, too, where I think that our culture might have a lot of trouble with this. Augustine will say things like, uh, well, if, if, if you think that it's okay to lie because it brings about good, let's think about other bad actions. And the two that he brings up over and over again are um, committing adultery and stealing. And, and I think he does that because there's, you know... Uh, uh, you know, pretty absolute injunctions against both of those in, in the Decalogue. So he says, what if somebody came to you and they said, um, if you don't have sex with me, I'm going to kill myself. Now, are you going to let them, you know, kill themselves, even though it means that you're going to commit adultery? Um, and Augustine would say, well, you know, there's a difference between actually choosing to do something that's wrong and allowing something that's wrong to happen um, by not doing something that would, that would keep it from happening. In this case, you know, he's expecting an audience to say, no, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. Whereas I think in our time, a lot of people would say, oh, yeah, just, just you know, that, that's, that's clearly a case where you should do that. Or, you know, with stealing, I think there's, there's a less of an abhorrence to stealing or taking something without permission than there was among the community that he's writing to because he says, um, you know, if by stealing, which you know is wrong, you can actually do something good for somebody else, um, does that make it okay? And he's expecting the audience to say uh, no, so therefore lying can't follow the same sort of uh, reasoning. Um, and I think we now live in times and have for quite a while where when it comes to sexual morality, when it comes to, um, you know, how we use language and how we represent things and how we regard what's, you know, what's yours, what's mine, what's other people's, what's, what's you know, what belongs to people. Uh, we live in a culture that tends to view these very situationally, you know, very much along, you know, if you can make a utilitarian argument for something working out better for most people, then I think a lot of people would say, yeah, um, eh, that's fine. You know, it'd be better if you didn't have to do that sort of thing, but if you have to uh, uh, break your marriage vows to keep somebody from killing themselves or, you know, to, to benefit a whole bunch of starving people in, in you know, who knows where, eh, that's okay. As a matter of fact, you, you'd, you'd really be kind of like a hero. 
Whereas Augustine would say, no, oh, you've got it totally wrong. <laughs> um, any, uh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just saying, I, yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, it's, it's it's interesting. It's just it's it's neat to see how you know we you you have to wrestle over some of these over some of these issues because it may seem kind of paradoxical on the on the surface, but man, you know you really do have some of these things that come up. I, I know I'm thinking of like you know with uh, with the Holocaust. If you you know you hear the example a lot oh, yeah. of uh, you know if you're no, I'll, I'll let you talk about that for a minute. So would it would it have been all right to um, conceal, uh, you know, a Jewish person who, or, or you know, I mean, the Holocaust, half the people who were were killed were were Jews. A lot of them were Slavs or Jehovah's Witnesses or you know, a whole host of other right. people. Would it would it be okay to lie to the Gestapo officer who's in your house? and is wanting to know whether there is any um, any person of interest to them there. And you know that if if right. you if you tell them the truth, you're you're going to be collaborating with. You're not going to be causing because you know who's causing it? It's the it's the the SS people who are doing these things that are causing the death. Um, but you're going to be in some way participating in it, cooperating with it. Um, Augustine would say, I think that he would say that's that's a case an awful lot like the Egyptian midwives. And first thing that you could do, because you know um, the early Christians faced things like this, not, not in terms of genocide, but in terms of religious persecution. Uh, the first thing is not you know not telling the truth, not actually coming out and saying things is not the same thing as lying. So simply remaining silent or saying, uh, I'm not going to tell you or I'm not going to respond to that, those are all options. Um, mm-hmm. They might get you killed. And they, they, you know, they had a good chance of getting you killed back in Roman times too. Um, but they're all possible options. And if you value eternal life more than you value temporal life, which is tough to do, you know, Augustine understands that, um, but if you do rightly value these things, then you'll, you know, you'll try to avoid lying as much as possible. He, he makes it even tougher. At one point he says, what about a situation where if you, if you just like clam up and don't say anything, then they're going to search your house. Then they're going to, or they're going to know that the person's there. That you're being called upon to, you know, on the spot, deny that the person's there or else we're going to take him away for torture and execution. And he says, that is a tough one. Uh, But, and and again, this is where I think a lot of people would have a hard time with with Augustine's seeming intransigence. He says, even in that case, if you know that lying is wrong, it's still wrong to lie. And there's a fundamental difference between um, allowing something bad to happen and actually doing a bad action yourself. One is not culpable. The other one is. Um, you know, he has similar things about 
whether if you if you lied, you could prevent somebody from being raped, bodily defiled, you know, as he puts it. Um, and there was this sense back then that I think a lot of people still have that if if you know if you're forced to have sex against your will. Your, it's not just your body that's been defiled. It's it's like your psyche or your soul or your personality. And Augustine says, well, strictly speaking, you may you know you may feel bad after that, but strictly speaking, no. If you didn't actually consent to it, there's no defilement on your part. Um, so again, you'd have to put these things in perspective. Is it is it worth throwing away? or, you know, potentially throwing away, because God's merciful, right? Eternal life for the sake of preserving some some temporal good, or should you do the harder the harder route? Um, he thinks that you should you should take the harder route. But again, he's he's also very sympathetic to those who uh have a hard time um, stealing themselves to do this. Not only are there not only are there difficulties in figuring these things out. We have our emotions. You know, we have desire. We have fear. Right. We have the, the customs of the society that we live in. They don't get us off the hook, but they do yeah. lessen the guilt. You know. Well, let me let me ask you this, Doctor Sadler. What um, what are maybe some of the other major Christian thinkers that would have uh, maybe differed? With him and offered oh. another solution. Like, I'm just curious. Like, what what did uh, Thomas Aquinas or some of them think about this issue? Well, that's interesting. So, Aquinas, um, he thinks that lying is is intrinsically wrong as well. The okay. way that you can get the way that you can get around it is you always have to consider. He's got a thing that's similar to this with stealing too. What about what about the person who steals to feed their family, and it's the only possible way that they can keep their family alive? He says, "Well, in a case like that, it's not really stealing. You got to have the right description for the action." And Thomas is very, very careful about this sort of stuff. I think a lot of people who came after Thomas played pretty fast and loose with this. There's there's this okay. adjective Jesuitical. Have you ever heard somebody, you know, being called Jesuitical? Um, I've not. It means that it, it means that they're they have, they're willing to sort of cut corners when it comes to telling the truth because there were there were people and some of this came about um, because of uh, having to do with religious persecution. Um, you know, for example. If you were Catholic at a certain time in England, that was a death sentence. And if you were a priest, that was that was pretty much, you know, that was it for you. So there were these houses um, that would have these special chambers within them, and they called them priest rooms or something like that. And that's where you would hide the priest who came over from France, from from the seminaries over there to like do the thing in your chapel. And so if somebody came in and said, is that priest here? Some moral theologians said something like this. You could put your hand on, on a desk and say, he's not here. 
because you you're actually talking about he's not here in the desk. <laughs> now, once you start going down that road, uh, it becomes I think it becomes is so so easy to start you know finding excuses for for telling all sorts of things that aren't aren't true uh, and and you know the distinction between truth and lies begins to break down and um, but it does so because people are telling lies and saying that it's okay to do so because there's some you know good that's that's served in that case and you know, by the time that we get to Blaise Pascal and writing the provincial letters, Pascal's a, a Catholic, but he's writing against um, some of the other Catholics who are engaging in what's called um, casuistry at that time. And they would, you know, they would, they would, so to speak, cut all these corners. And he says, look, you know, if you do that sort of thing, no wonder the Protestants don't like you, you know? Um, this is this is roughly this is very roughly paraphrasing, and he he you know he said it with much greater wit and at a much greater length. Um, but you know if, if you're going to do that sort of thing, then um, you 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 know you're really um, playing with fire, because God is truth, and if you think that God is going to go along with telling lies because it somehow serves the, the institutional church, um, that's probably not going to cut it. You know, I mean, God could be merciful and say, well, uh, I'll let you off this time for that. But, but you know, you don't want to presume on God's mercy. Um, uh-huh. And it, te- it tends to lead to a habit of countenancing lies much too easily. Now, there's, there's plenty of Christian thinkers who were very scrupulous about, about um, not telling lies, but also learned from Augustine that not everything that looks like a lie is actually a lie. Um, Anselm is kind of an interesting case um, because he's got this very robust conception of, of lying. I mean, he even calls himself a lying monk because he's not, you know, he's not completely where he ought to be. He says this in his prayer to St. Benedict because he composed a lot of really cool prayers. Um, and you know he's got a lot of reflections. Anyway, he's got a lot of reflections on, on truth and lying. He he was willing to um, to adapt himself so long as he could do so without sinning to any audience, to any person, so that he could he could you know like in the Pauline phrase um, be all things to all men. Being all things to all men doesn't mean you just lie to everybody and say, I'm just like you. I'm, I'm, you know, for the things that you're for and then try to wean them back. It means that you're willing to try to see things their way, to not criticize at this time and, and maybe criticize when they actually ask you, you know, am I doing the right thing rather than just jumping on their case. Uh, and it means to be, to, to really show um, charity. So... Uh, Anselm is a great example of that. Um, who else would be particularly interesting to think about? Um, you know, I mean, somebody who's not a uh, a 
Christian thinker in any sort of orthodox sense, but also is uncompromising about lying, is Immanuel Kant. Um, and, I mean, it could be that that's partly a residue of uh, his Lutheran pietist upbringing. Um, but he also thinks that once you start telling lies, and this is kind of an interesting idea, once you start telling lies, the boundary between truth and falsehood starts to, starts to break down. And if, if everyone were to tell lies, if everyone were to, to lie whenever it's convenient, we would have no conception of the difference between truth and lies. You couldn't count on anybody wow. to tell the truth. Uh, and so there's a sort of moral, there's a sort of incoherence, not just a moral incoherence, but a logical incoherence in the very act of, of lying, according to Kant. That goes pretty far. You know, I'm not sure I, I, I quite yeah. buy that. Um, but yeah, he was, he was pretty intransigent when it came to that as well. I guess, you know, part of what really attracted me to Augustine was the, the fact that he's willing to say that lies are always wrong, but um, they vary according to how they're wrong. And they never become right. They never become good. But they're not always terrible. Sometimes they're they're almost just like you know right at the boundary mark of of whether they could be crossing. They never cross the threshold, but they're all, some of them are like almost at the boundary mark of of crossing into goodness. You know, like like the lies of the the Hebrew midwives. Right. Yeah, that is that is definitely it is interesting because you see the kind of the moral dilemmas that are not just theoretical but actually happen, you know, in, in real life that we have to, uh, you definitely have to wrestle with. Yeah, I mean, we uh, face some... See. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say we face them pretty much every day when we're tempted, at least I know I'm tempted to lie to people probably every day about, you know, ways that are <laughs> nice, uh, saving faith, um, you know, just all sorts of things like that. And I think now that we have social media, it's become more acute because, you know, think about how many people you engage face-to-face -face each day. It's not an awful lot, right? Even if you're, like, you know, teaching, you know, to a whole lecture hall, you're not, unless you're, you know, telling lies in your lecture, you're, you're not really engaging in a lot of personal things. But with social media there's a tendency for people to uh, put the best face sometimes on things in a somewhat deceptive way or to be overdramatic, uh, you know, to... Um, I mean, there's all sorts of opportunities. And you're engaging. You've got people at your fingertips, essentially, at least the icons of them yeah. and their words. Um, are you, are you lying when you, this is kind of a, a question to consider, are you lying when you click the like thing on something that you don't really like just because, um, you know, you, you want to be the kind of person who'd like that thing, you know, <laughs> even though you don't really like it? I, I think that you could say that's, that's a dilemma, you know. One of the things you brought up was kind of, you know, uh, definition of a lie. And I guess there's probably different people may define it differently. But talk, talk about that again maybe for, for a few minutes. Again, is, is 
is really that's what it gets down to is uh, really kind of the definition, I guess, of what you know. What do you mean by lie? And you'd said something to the effect of with uh, with purpose to to deceive or something. Is that it? Yeah, there has to be some intention to deceive the the person who is hearing it. Or I mean, I suppose you could say when you're lying to yourself, there has to be some some deceive yourself as well. Um, but uh, yeah, if it's not enough just to say something that's false. If you say something that's false, but you actually believe that it's true, you're not actually lying to the person that you're saying it to. Um, now, you know, sometimes we're convinced of things that we don't really have any good reason to be convinced of because we told ourselves a lie about whether, you know, it, we have good grounds for believing it. Uh, and I suppose you could, Augustine doesn't consider this, but you could say that sometimes we have lies that follow from, from other lies. Um, but for Augustine, there actually has to be some intent to deceive the other person. Okay. Some intent to mislead them. Some intent to, uh, you know, put something uh, false in place of something that's true. That makes sense. Yeah, because you could, you know, you could have. Uh yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of scenarios you could think up of where you you actually believe something is is true, and you're just mistaken about that. Yeah, so I can only see that. How that could be. Like, was there, was I, there anything? Uh, oh, go ahead. Well, I mean, a case like that would be I see. Um, let's say you have a, a really close friend, right? And he's married, and I see him. Um, sitting sitting at a diner with, with some other woman who I know isn't his wife, and uh, they lean in for a kiss. And now, um, you know, I go to you and I say, ah, your friend is, is cheating on his wife. You know, what, what should we do? Um, and, and now you think that's, that's actually the case. You notice I've made an inference. All I've actually seen is, is uh, a kiss. And then later on, you know, you confront him and he says, uh, yeah, we were practicing this play. And there's actually a scene in there where we're supposed to kiss. Um, these are the sort of things that happen in sitcoms all the time, right? Uh, so, or on the Disney Channel, um, you know. And uh, I didn't actually lie to you. I mean, you come back to me and say, you lied to me, you jerk, you know. And now I got in hot water because I confronted my friend and, and you know, big mess. Um, I didn't actually lie to you. I did go beyond what I what I had, you know, reasonable grounds to infer. I suppose, although you know, if you, if you see people kissing in a diner, um, I don't know. That seems like uh, fairly good good uh, evidence there. Um, and you didn't lie either. There wasn't any right. uh, intent to deceive. Now, if if uh, I don't like your friend, and I know that they're actually practicing a play, and I snap a shot with my cell phone, and I send it to you, and I say, your friend is cheating on his wife. You ought to get rid of that low life. See, here's the evidence. Now I'm lying to you. Now I have actually deceived you. Well, we see the difference between the two. Any Anything else that uh, maybe that you, ha you wanted to, to cover in a little more detail, or... 
or uh, you think you got it? You think you about got it all? I know we've been you've been going for quite a while here. Well, I think one thing that we haven't talked about much is you know I've mentioned yeah. that you know for any any Christian thinker, God is truth, and you know truth with a capital T. Um, and Augustine is a Neoplatonist, so that means that um, not only is God truth, God is the truth in which all other truths must must participate in some way or another in order to actually have their status as, as truth. Um, so one of the things that he does talk about is... Um, it's not enough for us just to avoid lies. We actually, we actually should strive to make ourselves um, more and more persons within the truth, so to speak. That is, we ought to try to understand the truth more and more. We ought to contemplate, um, you know, the the nature of the eternal law, uh, which which is, you know something that takes a lot of work, I guess. Um, but, you know, we have, we have plenty of time to do so. And we ought to not only do this practically and, you know, in terms of our intellect and, and contemplatively and in terms of our will, we also ought to do this in terms of love. We, we want to become people who actually love truth, who wouldn't just feel bad about lying, but would feel like we betrayed something that's, you know, intrinsically valuable by lying, that we distance ourselves from that which we love. Um, and, and that's something that I think is really easy to lose sight of when we're looking at um, should we lie or not lie. You know, it tends to boil down to, to rules. Um, you know, if, if you wanted to put this in another framework, you could think of, um, you know, the Ten Commandments and how they're, you know, they're framed in terms of rules. Um, and then think about Psalm 1. You know, what does that actually tell us? It says that um, we don't just want to be rule keepers. We want to be the kind of people who actually love the law and meditate upon it day and night and place it in our hearts. And only by doing that, is you know, a nice metaphor there, are we going to be like the tree that's near the, the uh, underground waters, the, the springs or the rivers, um, that, that retain their, their leaves even when the, the, the scorching heat comes. Um, right. You know, you could think about, you could think about that, that actually makes me, of course, think of the, the parable of the sower, too, you know. Yeah. Um, only when you actually have some sort of recognition of not just doing, not just avoiding doing the wrong thing, but of the positive status, the positive value of of goodness, of what it is that you're actually trying to preserve, um, are you going to be fruitful? You know. And the people who are able to stick it out, and I can say this both from having stuck some things out and also from having, you know, fallen away and backslid from time to time. Um, the only time when you're actually able to stick things out and to persevere is when uh, you actually are 
aligning yourself with what's most real. In, in Augustine's case, it's, it's going to be God as truth. So it's, you know, there's, there's this tendency, and, and I, I know you've seen it just as much as I have, and, and Christians see this everywhere, to, um, towards legalism, you know, towards turning Christianity into a bunch of rules and, and losing right. sight. And I'm not to, not to say that, you know, rules, we should get rid of them all. We're not antinomians either, but um, right. the rules all, always have to be inhabited by an understanding of what the, the real goods at stake are. Um, otherwise, people get bitter and, you know, they don't really want to do it, but they make themselves do it, and that's just not sustainable in the long run. Very good point. Very good point. Yeah. I mean, in a way, to, to be a legalist is to lie to oneself. You know? The problem is, is that some people, um, that's all they've gotten so far, you know? You know, you, 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 you mentioned Ehrman, um, and Ehrman is kind of an interesting guy because like a lot of people who were brought up in very strict households, you know, once, once he goes off the, uh, the proverbial reservation, he's like going all the other way, right? And why, you know, I'm not going to say that I know about his, his case or what's going on in his case. I'll just say this, that in a lot of cases like that, it's because they never actually saw um, what it was that Christianity was supposed to be supplying them with. They didn't experience uh, love, you know, behind the law. And so that's, if you don't hear yeah, that... That's, that's amazing. It's, it's, it's funny. The, re- the reason he said, one of the big reasons he had walked away from the faith, he said was the problem of evil. So uh, I think you're right. I think it, maybe he didn't, he didn't get the whole picture, right? Yeah. You know... The, uh, I was, I, I've been reading a lot of Dostoevsky lately uh, to, to, to totally change the subject. <laughs> um, not, not actually changing it, though, but I've been reading a lot of Dostoevsky lately, and I was rereading um, The Brothers Karamazov, and you've got this guy, Ivan, who is, you know, he's, he's a skeptic. And um, right before the famous Grand Inquisitor uh, chapter, where Christ shows shows up on earth in Spain and the Grand Inquisitor, you know, chews him out and is going to execute him and all this stuff is, is taking place. There's a chapter where Ivan brings up the problem of evil and he, he brings up, um, he says, you know, put aside all the other stuff, you know, the, uh, the adults, maybe they had it coming to them. But what about these children who suffer at the hands of adults? And then he runs through these, um, these cases, and they're horrific. You know, they're like, uh, you know, the stuff that Child Protective Services is um, supposed to be on the alert for, but sometimes, you know, lets, lets children fall through the cracks into these days, some of the, the stuff that, that Dostoevsky writes about. Okay. So the problem of evil, that's a, that, that is a really tough one, you know. I mean, there really is evil, you know, that, that we, we do right. see. Um, it's not something we can just sort of turn our, our gaze away from and be Pollyannish about. Um, can that actually be redeemed? So, you know, when somebody like Ehrman says, I have a real hard time with that, um, he's in a lot of good company. You know? Yes, he is. That's right. Probably the biggest objection to the Christian faith, wouldn't you say? 
The problem of evil. Uh, I would, yeah, I would say that, I mean, there's a lot of different um, objections that can be, like, put in terms of problems or arguments. And, uh, you know, some of them are things like, well, you know, we can explain it sociologically or stuff like that. And those are kind of superficial compared to the problem of evil. Um, You know, Gabriel Marcel, um, another great uh, 20th century Christian thinker, he actually says that it's a mistake to see it as a problem rather than as a mystery. And he makes the distinction between um, problem and mystery. And he says, a mystery is a problem that encroaches upon its own data where you realize as you're trying to figure it out that you yourself are wrapped up in it and implicated in it. And the problem of evil isn't something to come up with some nice, neat, you know, argument to to banish away. Um, If Marcel is right, it calls upon us to realize just how screwed up we ourselves are and to see that that might actually be one reason why we're we're having such a hard time with that 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 particular problem. Um, but that 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 allows us to be you know empathetic to those who are really struggling with it, and and not not taking some of the easy you know ways out like well there really is no evil or you know it's the best of all possible worlds you know, I mean those are kind of superficial answers to that really saying, how, how does this stuff happen? You know? Uh, this is horrific. Yeah, I think, if, I think yeah. if you're a Christian and you're being intellectually honest, you see that stuff. Uh, at least you should, I would think, you know, feel that yeah. way. I know, I know Dr. Ehrman uh, actually did a radio debate with Dr. Richard Swinburne, who I'm sure you're aware of. And, uh, you know, Dr. Swinburne, really focused on the logical problem and um, I mean you know Alvin planting in that the whole logical problem to bed but you still have that inductive problem and then you also have the emo- you really do feel the the weight of the emotional problem of evil don't you yeah it's an existential problem it's uh, yeah. and you know it's going to be with us until humankind is completely redeemed because there's always going to be some, you know, some people not just doing a few bad things, but, you know, doing profoundly horrific things, um, you know. So it's, it's not a problem that's going to uh, be neatly driven away at any any given time. Every, every generation is going to have to fix it. Yeah, I think next uh, next month, I think you're going to come on. We're going to do Augustine Part Two, right? We're going to we're going to dive into some of the issues with his view of the, of the problem of evil, or and, and uh, yeah, and that right, so. and the nature of evil too, um, because you know I, one of one of the ways in which Augustine does deal with it is by saying, strictly speaking, although we experience evil as something positive, it's really a privation of the good. Um, doesn't have any, it's a corruption. It doesn't have any independent ontological status of its own. You know, like the Manichaeans, you know, were saying that there was, there's a, a good principle and an evil principle. And they had this dualistic point of view. And, and Augustine 
says, no, that, that, that doesn't really work. Um, but yeah, that, that'll be stuff that we put off till, till next time. Um, you know, going back to Ehrman, it's, it's, it's interesting. I used to teach his, his, some of his works in, in my classes because I, when I taught religious studies at Indiana State Prison, one of the classes that I was tasked with was uh, called Jesus and the Gospel Traditions. And, you know, typical religious studies orientation, we were supposed to teach about um, the canonical Gospels and about the non-canonical Gospels and talk a little bit about non other non-canonical things like, you know, the different acts and and stuff like that. And, you know, because people would people would watch the History Channel and they'd be like, well, wait a second, what about the Gospel of Thomas? And then, you know, you'd, you'd, we'd actually have them, like, read it, and then they'd be like, oh, yeah, I, I, I kind of see now why why um, that's not taken quite as seriously. Uh, and then they'd read some of the scholarship on it. And and Ehrman was good um, in his, his early work for contextualizing this stuff, for... Um, you know, giving you translations that would be kind of useful of these these apocryphal texts. Um, what did it for me was was uh, reading his his uh, discussions in in this you know when they they discovered this gospel of, of Judas, um, which turned out just to be like a big bust. It didn't actually tell us anything you know interesting or useful. Although a lot of people tried to get mileage out of it, and then I saw him pile onto that, and I and I. You know, found myself saying, "Well, I don't think I'm going to get that much out of this guy anymore." Wow. Um, yeah. And you know, I, I, I don't mean to sound flip with that because I'm I'm not a a biblical exegete or or you know, great scripture scholar. I I only read Greek. I don't read Hebrew or or Coptic or Aramaic or any of these sorts of things. Um, but it was hard for me to take his stuff seriously after that Gospel of Judas stuff, you know? Right. Yeah, well, they say, you know, his his scholarly work is supposed to be excellent, and uh, mm. Daniel Wallace, who's a Protestant scholar, they've had several debates. Um, his scholarly work is good, but they say his popular work is just such a different tone, uh, you know, like yeah. uh, misquoting Jesus and that. You can see it's, it's He's just playing to a different crowd because he knows he, he can't get away with that stuff in acad you know academia. But you know, lay people, internet atheists that uh, are just going to grab onto anything they can. It's easier to sell. I don't know. Like that. I think that in 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 some fields it would be harder in academics to get away with that sort of thing. But I think that these days, given how little scholarly attention there actually is to religion in general and then to Christianity in particular, getting beyond just, you know, the sort of popular level in academia. But academics in general, in my experience, are some of the worst read people when it comes to not just, you know, say, say scripture, but to just any traditional religiously oriented literature, you know. The, uh, and, the, and the trouble is is that they think they know it all. They think they've figured all this stuff out. But, you know, unless you've actually read 
Jonathan Edwards, you probably shouldn't say anything about Jonathan Edwards and the Puritan mind, you know. Uh, unless you've actually read Augustine, you probably shouldn't, you know, opine about Augustine and original sin just because it was in a, a textbook that, you know, you came across or some, some critical theory thing uh, years and wow. years and years ago. Or because Nietzsche said that Augustine had said this sort of thing. But academics tend to be, within their own particular field, they tend to be very critical, you know, very, very attentive. They get outside of it, and they find many of them are just, you know, they're, 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 they're more credulous than the average layperson, because the average layperson at least knows that they don't, you know, they don't know this field, you know. A lot of right. academics, you know. It's rare to find somebody who has genuine interdisciplinary training and knowledge. And so I think that when it comes to religious studies, I mean, Bart Ehrman is the, the head of the religious studies department at Chapel Hill, unless, you know, unless he's left there since, since he was in charge. And so that by itself is going to give him just a massive status, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what you see them all the time, with the, especially this time of year, with the Easter coming up. I mean, the History Channel, oh, yeah. Discovery Channel, you know, National Geographic. I mean, they they really give him a lot of time. Yeah, I used to have to tell my students not to pay attention to anything that they saw on the History Channel, <laughs> the Learning Channel, or the Discovery Channel. Not not with respect to everything but with right. respect to religious history, because they would always get people who were more or less on the fringe, and then they would present them as if they're the mainstream scholarship, and then they would throw in, like, one or two dissenting views, you know, just to, like, you know, seem like they had some, some uh, balance to it. And they would come out with stuff, you know, like, well, maybe Jesus was on a UFO, you know, uh, or this, go this Gospel of Thomas. Everyone believes that it's that it's you know earlier than than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and and you, you know you'd hear this stuff and you're like, and then my students would come to me and they'd say, hey, I, I saw this special last night and they were saying, you know, X Y Z is that true? Because they, you know, they really wanted to know. And th there's this there's this feeling like. Um, Hey, you know, this, this is so cool getting to know what's really, really real. You know, getting the, you know, getting to hear the, the true story. Um, and it, 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 a lot of, yeah, it's really reprehensible that the yeah. History Channel and Discovery Channel that they do this sort of stuff because um, they could be doing so much better. I mean, they could they could get mainstream scholars on, and they wouldn't be making any crazy claims, you know, that nobody's ever made about, about Jesus. But the ordinary yeah. stories, kind of, I mean... Yeah, you don't have to even bring Christians on. Just bring, you know, level-headed scholars. Don't bring John Dominic Crossan and the Jesus yeah. seminar and act as though somehow they're the mainstream when they're not. Yeah. I mean, you know, the stories that, that are in the Gospels, the canonical Gospels, when they're actually read, you know, and like paid attention to and thought about, they're really interesting. I mean, uh, I think I may have mentioned this in another show. Uh, Chesterton wrote this book that I'm really a big fan of called The Everlasting Man. And in it, 
uh, Chesterton was was criticizing the Jesus scholarship of his time, and he was criticizing some of the uh, you know pop culture attitudes towards towards Jesus and towards Christianity that were coming out uh, about the same time as well. And a lot of what he has to say applies just as well to contemporary you know Jesus questers and and uh, uh, pop culture stuff today. He anyway here's here's what he said that was really um, striking. He said, a lot of times people will say um, that you've got a difference between the Jesus of the Gospels and the Jesus of the Church. The Jesus of the Gospels is a super nice, meek guy who just goes around healing everybody and never says any mean words to anyone. And the Jesus of the Church is this repellent ideologue who just has rules about everything. And, you know, so obviously the church has, like, hidden the real Jesus from us. And he says, the only person who could possibly think this is somebody who's never actually read the Gospels. Because when you actually read the Gospels, you find out very quickly that the Jesus of the Gospels is a hell of a lot more demanding than the Jesus who's being preached from the pulpit. The Jesus who's being preached from the pulpit. Is very often the, you know, uh, butter won't melt in his mouth. <laughs> Everybody would be nice to each other, the guy. And the Jesus in the gospel says that, you know, like he, he goes to the well in Samaria and, and uh, a lady comes up and, and he says, you know, uh, they, they go back and forth. And then he says, yeah, you know, you've been shacking up with all these guys. Um, what are you going to do about that? <laughs> and uh, you wouldn't hear that in, in, in you know the Jews in, in church in a lot of churches because you know that's that's not nice that's that's scandalous. He was confronting her. He wasn't just being understanding and saying, you know, oh everybody you know everybody falls once in a while. You know he was challenging her to actually be chaste. Um, you know he tells Peter. Uh, get behind me, and you can translate Satan as uh, uh, adversary or something like that to try to soften it, but, you know, he's saying, he's not just saying, get behind me, dummy. He's saying, get behind me, you guy who's, like, got everything totally upside down. Uh, so, you know, this, this, uh, this, this notion that somehow the Jesus that we've got in the Gospels is not an interesting guy. We need some other stuff to really liven it up. The only way you could possibly think that is if you don't actually take the Gospels uh, seriously and read the, the stories that are in them. You know, half the time yeah. the disciples are wandering around with this guy and they don't know where they're going next and they're, they're like, I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I was just say you got you've got miracles, you've got resurrections, feeding 5,000, you know, if if that's not enough to arrest your attention, then yeah, nothing is. There's not a whole lot you're going to be able to add uh, to that. But uh, Dr. Sadler, we got about uh, a minute and a half. Wrap us up on on this show. Kind of draw the threads together and give us a conclusion about this this uh, <laughs> this uh, talk on Augustine and truth. Well, we, I mean, we've ranged over so much that it's kind of hard to draw all these yeah. threads together. Um, I guess, I mean, if we're going to focus on Augustine, so Augustine, I, I think the, the really key thing to take away from this is that Augustine thinks that lying is always wrong, 
but he's also able to have sympathy for those who have a hard time understanding why that's the case, and he patiently explains to them why that actually would be the case. Okay. And uh, next month, uh, you're going to be back on. We're going to do Augustine Part 2. What are we going to talk about then? Uh, the problem of evil and the nature of evil. Great. That's going to be a it's going to be a great show. I've actually I've done two semesters in seminary uh, on that. In the last book we went through, one of the books we went through was uh, Thomas Aquinas's On Evil. And oh uh, man, yeah, that's going to work of pure genius. Because <laughs> Aquinas really really built a lot off of Saint Augustine, didn't he? Oh yeah. Definitely. He's, he's a Aristotelian Augustinian, you know? Yeah, love that. All right. Well, I appreciate you coming back on, Dr. Sadler. I'm looking forward. I think we, we get a lot, of, a lot more shows, uh, a lot of more famous uh, philosophers and thinkers, uh, Christian and non-Christian, I think. Some of the skeptics we, we should tackle as well. So really appreciate you taking two hours of your day to come on the show and uh, podcast will be up uh, right away as soon as this show is over, so uh, ask people to put it on your Facebook page, share it, and uh, Dr. Sandler, give us your, your website and that again for people to come check you out. Oh, well, I think that probably the easiest thing to, to get to, because there's links to some of the other uh, sites that I have, would be my, my YouTube uh, channel. So... Let me get the, uh, I mean, you can just type in Gregory Sadler YouTube, and, and it should come up. But the actual uh, web address would be youtube.com uh, slash GBI Sadler. Okay, great. And what we'll do is we'll put a, a uh, link up on our Facebook page uh, to that as well, and that way people can, can uh, go to it and check it out. So we uh, appreciate you being here with us. Look forward to having you with us uh, again next month. Thanks. Yeah, I very much enjoyed this. All right. Appreciate it. God bless. Thanks. Have a good night. You as well. All right, folks. So next week, uh, join us. We will have uh, Rob Bowman on the show, and uh, we are going to be looking at Bart Ehrman's latest work, uh, let's see if I can pull up the name again, uh, How Jesus Became God. And uh, we'll throw up the link on our Facebook page where Rob Bowman has actually uh, already done an article uh, on parchment and pen, kind of going through a review of this book. So appreciate uh, everybody joining with us. If you've got any questions or comments, uh, you can reach us at theologymattersradio at gmail.com theologymattersradio at gmail.com. Also, you can find us at Theology Matters on Facebook as well. If you have any questions uh, for Dr. Sadler, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, you can look us up on Facebook or get us in the email, and we will certainly put you in touch with him. And I uh, just want to say thanks again to Dr. Sadler, and we look uh, forward to uh, next week. And uh, Lord bless you guys. God bless.